Welcome to episode 91 of the show. I recently listened to the podcast Forward Guidance with Jack Farley titled Rate Cuts May Not End Fed's Quantitative Tightening. The podcast is an interview with former Atlanta Fed President Dennis Lockhart. And what struck me most about the interview is not the content itself, but the broad generalities used by central bankers to describe their craft and the fact that they seem to believe that economies are cause and effect machines that can be managed. Consider the following quote from Mr. Lockhart, wherein he recalls the meeting that led to the Federal Reserve's adoption of a 2% inflation target. Explicitly stating a 2% target for inflation helped to anchor inflation expectations, and inflation expectations are a factor in inflation. It's important that the public not believe that inflation is going to get out of hand, and therefore change their consumption patterns for that reason. Listening to just one sentence of the interview generated about a dozen questions in my mind. What exactly is a 2% inflation target? To meet the target, would inflation have to be exactly 2% or an average of 2%? If we're targeting an average of 2%, then over what time period must we measure inflation to know that our target is achieved? Which measure of inflation should we use, and can the measuring tool itself change over time, as it has in the past? What is the cause of inflation? Is it consumer expectations, consumption patterns, supply chain imbalances, or some other mysterious force or combination of forces? In the 1930s, Alfred Korzybski wrote an introduction to non-Aristotelian systems and general semantics, and launched the concepts of general semantics into the world. One of the ideas contained in Korzybski's work was the idea that much of our language is undefinable and that this lack of linguistic precision leads to confusion in both thought and communication. We can see a few examples of this imprecise language in the quotation already cited in this write-up. For example, how would you strictly measure inflation expectations? By what degree must the populace expect there to be inflation? How much inflation does each person need to expect, and over what time period do you measure changes in expectations? Can consumer expectations of deflation cause the opposite phenomenon to occur? Speaking in generalities carries a double benefit to the speaker, in that it sounds like something significant is being communicated, even when it isn't, and its very generality gives it the appearance of prescience and hindsight. If the rate of inflation returns to 2%, then the Federal Reserve looks brilliant. And if it doesn't, well, they told you that it wouldn't because public inflation expectations ran too high. Or, worst case, if the inflation rate stays well above or below their target for years, then we simply haven't waited long enough for the average inflation rate to hit our desired target. Any future outcome will look in hindsight as though it were predicted in advance. The second aspect of Mr. Lockhart's statement that caught my attention was his belief that the Fed can manage the economy. If we anchor inflation expectations at 2%, then the public will not adjust their expectations upward, is essentially the argument that he made. We believe that the economy is a complex adaptive system, more akin to an ecosystem than a diesel generator, but some, to include most economists and central bankers, operate from the economy-as-a-machine framework. 
The best example of the economy as a machine perspective is probably Ray Dalio's video of the same name, How the Economic Machine Works. The video is well done and educational, and it hits on all of the ways in which the economy does, in fact, work like a machine. But it fails to address the ways in which the economy also functions like a complex adaptive system. A complex adaptive system is a system made up of many individual parts or agents. The individual parts or agents in a complex adaptive system follow simple rules, and there is no leader or individual who is coordinating the action of others. The key word in that definition is agents. Agents decide. Agents act independently. Agents are more than simple cause and effect parts of a machine. If a diesel generator is about to run out of fuel, it can't decide preemptively to throttle back and conserve, or to shut itself down and save some fuel for the future, but an individual, an agent, can. Each agent within an economy can respond using their own agency to any signal in whichever way they see fit. Ludwig von Mises expounds on this concept extensively in his book, Human Action, using the term praxeology to frame the idea. Listening to Mr. Lockhart's interview and reflecting on his mechanistic economic views, supported by all the vagary that the English language could bring to bear on the topic, served to highlight the contrast between his economic framework and my own. My own view is that the economy functions more like a natural habitat than a washing machine. Practically speaking, this perspective has left me with a keep-it-simple-stupid view of investing. If I don't believe the economy is a machine, which I don't, then I won't fool myself into thinking I can predict where the economy is going. Instead, I can take each investment opportunity independently and judge for myself how the investment will perform under all types of economic environments. I don't dilute myself into thinking that I can predict which specific economic conditions the investment will face. But I do run through a variety of scenarios that the investment could face. Humans follow the same reasoning when preparing for adverse weather. Rather than spend time attempting to predict the exact time and location of a tornado, we spend the time and effort building a storm shelter so that if a tornado comes, we can deal with it. Regardless of whether or not we accurately forecasted the tornado itself, Approaching investing in this way leads you to make investment based on a few very clear signals that cut through the noise that would otherwise confuse your thinking. Speaking from my own experience, this view of the world has led to some of my best performing investments. To this day, I still have a piece of hotel stationery on which I penciled out my buy decision for Monster Energy stock. I had some downtime at my hotel while traveling for work and decided to do a very basic discounted cash flow table of what I predicted Monster Energy would earn over the next 10 years. The 10-year outdate is now years in the past, but the earnings estimates were pretty close to the actual numbers that the company produced. My buy thesis rested on the following few premises. That caffeine and sugar are habit-forming, that the company was founder-led with high insider ownership, that the company had a low cost structure, and that the addressable market still had plenty of runway. On the opposite end of the spectrum, I've had some pretty fancy investment theses in other companies that resulted, predictably, in poor investment performances. The acknowledgement that we can't control or predict where the economy is going should lead us down a pathway to more simple, not more complicated investments, and today's investment write-up 
is as simple as they come. San Juan Basin Royalty Trust and Permian Basin Royalty Trust were created from the same transaction in 1980. A 75% net overriding royalty was conveyed to San Juan Trust on 156,000 gross acres of northern New Mexico land. The land produces predominantly natural gas, with some oil included in overall production. The trust's land ownership is fee simple, and the trust has no set end date. With a current market cap of $358 million, the trust was able to produce $7 million in earnings in 2020 and $78 million in 2022. 2020 was, of course, the worst year possible for oil and gas as the entire industry ground to a halt due to COVID lockdowns. That the trust earned anything at all, however, is a testament to the superior economics of royalties and trusts. So there it is, as simple as a lemonade stand. But if it's that simple, then why write about it at all? To begin, that's why we had the long introduction explaining our obsession with simple investment theses. Theses so simple that they can be penciled onto a piece of hotel stationery in less than an hour. That, and there's a little more to it than just that overview. First of all, let's review San Juan Royalty Trust's past performance. From 1995, the earliest date I could get comparison data for, through today, San Juan kept pace with the S&P 500, delivering 9.3% versus 9.5% combined annual growth rate with dividends reinvested over the 28-year period. On the surface, this appears unremarkable. But consider the macro environment the trust faced during that time period. In August of 1995, natural gas sold for $2.18 per MMBTU, and in 2023, it was priced at $2.66 per MMBTU. There were price spikes along the way, but the overall price of natural gas was flat. Remember that a trust is a pass-through vehicle with no mechanism for management brilliance to save the organization from economic headwinds. That the trust kept pace with the index despite a flat pricing environment is really quite remarkable. Consider that a one-day ticket to Disneyland cost $35 in 1995 and $109 to $189 today, depending on the date you visit. Imagine how Disney stock would have fared had the ticket price remained flat for close to 30 years. The Magic Kingdom probably could not have survived as a public company under those conditions, but the magic in a trust like San Juan is that its extremely low-cost structure allows it to keep pace with some of the best CEOs in the world. The future, of course, may not play out like the past, but the past does, not, does provide us with a useful case study. Because the pricing environment was so bad over the last several decades, to include a year of negative oil futures prices in 2020, we have a worst-case baseline environment from which to judge the trust's return on investment, and the performance, all things considered, is adequate. As we've discussed in prior episodes, we may be going into a period of sustained higher inflation with which a pass-through trust like San Juan would outperform its higher-cost structure competitors. But because we're not betting the farm on macroeconomic forecasts, all we can say is that the out or the performance going forward should be somewhere between adequate and outstanding. In either case, we're taking very little risk in participating in this perpetual call option. There's another point worth touching on. 
one that further informs our evaluation thesis. We've discussed the point in previous write-ups, so this will be a bit of a review, but it's a point well worth repeating. San Juan's land ownership is fee simple, meaning that it owns the underlying property and mineral rights, and not just a right to specific wells. Any given oil and gas wells production will decline over time, but the productivity of a piece of land with many well sites on it can extend out for decades. This was a point of confusion for us when we first started to research companies in the oil and gas space. When we saw, when we saw proved reserves, we took the numbers at face value and assumed it was an estimate of the property's total oil content, but that turns out not to be the case. The Society of Petroleum Engineers defines proved reserves as those quantities of petroleum which, by analysis of geological and engineering data, can be estimated with reasonable certainty to be commercially recoverable from a given date forward, from known reserves and under current economic conditions, operating methods, and government regulations. Put simply, oil reserves are not the actual amount of oil in the ground. Rather, they are the amount of oil that can be reasonably believed to be recoverable given today's oil price, technology, available extraction equipment on the property, and government regulation. The definition includes several variables, all of which are in constant flux. The point can be clarified by reviewing the following actual oil and gas reserves of San Juan Trust beginning in 1992, the earliest date I could get reliable information, through 2022. To keep the table manageable, the table includes only even years. A casual review of the numbers illustrates the point that reserves are not an assessment of oil in the ground. If that were the case, the highest numbers would appear in 1992 and would steadily decline with each passing year. The numbers, however, don't follow that pattern, but rather start high, then decline, then rise, then continue up and down over the years. The best correlation I could find between the proved reserves for San Juan and any other chart was to compare the chart to the price of natural gas over the same time period. Reserves are higher when the price is high, and they are lower when the price declines. Of course, there is more to it than a simple price correlation, as technological improvements like fracking increase reserve estimates, as does increased infrastructure on the property. The point of all this is simply to illustrate that a very high free cash flow yield company can be obtained on a debt-free asset with almost no expenses by buying San Juan Trust, and that reserves could last for much longer than any superficial review of the company's 10K would lead you to believe. Well, with that, we've come to the end of another episode. Uh, there are a couple of charts and tables in this one, and so you can always go to our special Situation Investing Substack page and look at the transcript with all the charts in it if you'd like to. Again, we thank you for all the support, especially the boosts on Fountain. And we look forward to bringing you another episode with more actionable investment write-ups next week.